what I say in the book, actually, is that I think Republicans are more likely to commit these kinds of crimes than Democrats, and that it has to do with the class base of their party, that they are the upper crust, and the people who are wealthy think the laws don't apply to them, whereas the working people, yeah, the working people, they just just obey the laws. Yep. I was very interested in the fact that assassination seems to be the most popular yes. state crime against democracy. If ostensibly the CIA can now kill people by by drones, cancer, yes, by giving them cancer, cancer, yeah, or heart attacks. So yep. our methods of forensic investigation well, are going to be a little bit more more difficult. Well, one thing that I've been looking at is the migration of CIA skills from overseas to the United States. What, what we see is we have a series of assassinations in the 1950s, and then we get a series in the U.S., the assassinations overseas, then they occur in the U.S. Uh, we learn to overthrow elections, and then we see election returns that are peculiar. So part of, you know, but it's these guys. I mean, you, we cannot underestimate their capabilities. I know that people would accuse me of being paranoid and, and freaked out. But these these are scientists. These are dedicated professionals who are dedicated to influencing us. And they have big budgets. And they have and they're compartmentalized. And what the compartmentalization allows you to do is take control of it. And the people continue to do their compartmentalized work and don't realize that the operation has been steered to another thing. When John Kennedy was, was killed, Robert Kennedy's first reaction was that they had taken the Bay of Pigs people and diverted them to Kennedy, to his brother. Yes. Um, I'd like to bring out something, too, which is I've noticed something with particularly people on the left that follow Noam Chomsky, whom I, I respect a great deal of the work of Noam Chomsky, um, but I think when it comes to conspiracy stuff, he's... It's very vitriolic and calls people a cult. How dare you even suggest that? And there's a there's a presentation that was presented, particularly about 9/11, which which is which falls into the work that Chomsky and others are doing, which is saying, hey, we're doing all these horrible things in the Middle East, and then all of a sudden, hey, look, okay, this is blowback. This is what we get, and and it kind of fit into this narrative, which is, you know, I I thought it was blowback too for probably the first year mm-hmm. after it happened, but I, I I've noticed that there are some individuals on the left, particularly followers of Chomsky, who feel threatened by, and feel that this is actually undermining, uh, and they feel threatened by conspiracy, yes. uh, and feel that it undermines the real work that's going on and needs to happen. Um, of course, I have a different, a very radically different perspective mm-hmm. than that, which I think just kind of gets at the heart of what's going on. But um, you want to think that... Yeah, no, Chomsky's a, a classic case. Chris Hedges is the same way. He's a... Very good. He writes inspiring things, but when it comes down to crime, he just won't go there. And I, and my suspicion is that the reason these people will not go there is they're afraid they'll be discredited. That the conspiracy theory uh, term and the norms associated with it are so powerful that if they touch it, they're going to be burned and 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 tarred with the, that brush. The thing about it that makes it so powerful is that it's a legal thing. Once you get into talking about criminality, well, then we're talking about law enforcement, we're talking about prosecution, we're talking about execution, we're talking about imprisonment. There's an apparatus that swings into motion if you designate something a crime. So I think, you know, 
it's great to talk intellectually about blowback and, and you know uh, inequality and, and that kind of thing, but unless you get it down to uh, we, these people are not just uh, carrying out a class interest, they're committing crimes. Until we get to that, it's going to be hard for us to stop them. Yes, sir. I just wanted to mention informationally that one of the early questioners who I didn't turn around to see mentioned Bernays. Yes. And there was only one copy of his book uh, circulating here in Colorado. But his books are actually in print. Yeah. Uh, propaganda. Yes. Opinion. They're in print. You can buy them. And he is a master propagandist. As I remember one of his famous phrases was about something to the effect, the necessary manipulation of the mass public mind. Yes. And so uh, he's well worth reading. Yeah, he, and he was involved in the World War One effort, and a lot of guys came out of that, Harold Laswell, and, uh, yeah, Lipton, yeah. So they, you know, there's a, there's a great book in sociology called The Science of Coercion by... Uh, I forget the guy's name, but it goes through the history of, of psychological warfare and says that in sociology, that's what it was. They, cut, they called it something else, but it was really murder and assassination and all that, and they legitimated it, but that's what they were studying, how to manipulate populations. There's a famous book called by Charles Beard, The Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, where he says if you read the Constitution, it protects the class interests of the people who wrote it. And... The other thing you might find interesting, Charles Beard developed what came to be called the conspiracy theory of the 14th Amendment. This is the amendment that gives uh, the rights of citizens to corporations. And what Beard said was that the terminology persons was put into the 14th Amendment specifically to, to have it interpreted by the court so that they would give these rights to corporations. It was a conspiracy uh, it involved the, the railroad lobbyists and the members of Congress who drafted it. A case comes to the Supreme Court in like the 18, mid-1890s, and it was about whether corporations got these rights or not. And uh, a former congressman and a lobbyist for the railroad testified in Congress that, yes, we conspired, we put that language in there, that was our purpose. And the Supreme Court said, you know, you'd think they'd say, you scoundrels. Get out of my court. They said, oh, that was the intent. Okay, that's fine. That's what we'll conclude. So what we're dealing with is with corporations, with Citizens United and stuff like that goes back to this kind of criminality. So what's your opinion about what is happening there in Colorado with communities who are actually going through the law to, um, to, create, to bring back democracy? I think it's great. I bet I... I'm hopeful that we're, we're going to see something like the progressive movement of the ni- early 1900s. That w- There's some research recently that said that in the early 1900s, before you had the, the regulatory apparatus established and a lot of the controls in place, People tried to fight these big interests, and they had great difficulty with it. They, you know, the, the unions were broken up by hired thugs. and But they learned, and they developed a consciousness about what was required. And 
it was the professionalization of government. It was getting uh, rid of elected uh, public officials down through the ranks and the spoil system and all that. So I think part of what's happening with things like fracking and fighting that and working through the local institutions is that you're experimenting and learning what's working, but you're creating the foundations for a much, a much larger movement across a range of issues. Because what we've got with the corporations and finance is just, how can you have a democracy when you've got this kind of concentration of wealth? The capture of the regulatory agencies. I think we, we should take seriously the oaths of office. And that oath is not just that you're going to obey the law, but you're going to protect, defend, and preserve the Constitution. And that Constitution is designed to empower us as a people. The preamble says we have come together to create this government so that we preserve our security and our rights and our uh, freedoms. And when people swear to it, they're swearing to a broad oath. I mentioned, I think tonight, that when Andrew Johnson was impeached, he was impeached for insulting the Congress was one of the things. But if you go back and read the impeachments, it wasn't like smoking guns. It was like, this guy's a scoundrel. You know, this guy is a liar. And that's what we've got to get back to. We don't need smoking guns. If we see that people are not protecting our interest, they are committing crimes. They're there to protect our interest. And, you know, I jokingly say, but there's some seriousness that we should erect a a guillotine down in Wall Street. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like a, a, a... a statue, but a guillotine, and just to remind people, this is what happens when you don't respond to the public over time. Eventually, they're going to get you. Last night, you mentioned uh, the use of the Supreme film of the Kennedy assassination. It was purchased, of course, by Life magazine. Right. But the publisher of Life at the time was C.L. Jackson, who, in fact, was the architect of a CIA operation in psychological warfare called Operation Mockingbird. Yes. began in 1950. Yep. And which continued not only through the period of the Kennedy's assassination, but at least up until 1975. Yes, this is pervasive. Uh, there was a National Security Council memo called NSC 68. It's about, You can find it on the Internet. It was published in 19... It was produced in 1950, and what it said is the American people don't have the stomach, basically, to stand up uh, toe-to-toe against the Soviet Union in a nuclear standoff, and it was going to take some effort on the part of the leadership to, to make us realize the importance of doing this. But it was basically a plan to manipulate the mass public, and I think, I mean, certainly it included Mockingbird, uh, the infiltration of the civil rights, anti-war, and women's movement. Um, I don't, I, I'm pretty paranoid at this point. I mean, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I see, uh, I wrote a, 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 an article for The Guardian about three weeks ago when they closed the embassies down because of the, they said there was chatter in the electronic communication and there were going to be these attacks. And I wrote this editorial and said, hey, we've seen this before. They, they do these terror alerts whenever they're in trouble and everybody's criticizing the, the electronic surveillance and suddenly the electronic surveillance is saving us from these attacks. It's ridiculous. 
but it, it's a pervasive thing. There's a psychoanalyst, a French psychoanalyst named Lacan, who talks about the um, authoritative, the the regime of order, of conceptual order, what's our framework. And I, I think that's what happens is you, you plant a few key concepts and events, you know, uh, Gulf of Tonkin attack, uh, 9-11, and everything else gets framed around that, everything downstream. So you can have a democratic process downstream, and you think you're influencing Congress, but they've already set the agenda for you with these state crimes. Okay, let me get back to it. Because I, I get this a lot. People ask me if I, when I go over this, well, what can we do? Well, if, they, you know, if everybody's they're running the country like this and, and staging and orchestrating these events that shape our, our society and our politics, what can we do? My answer, one simple answer is enforce the law. Enforce the law. We have pretty good laws on the books about conspiracy and uh, fraud. When 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 the Bush administration said that they that they didn't want to see a, the smoking gun be a mushroom cloud, and that they were sure that that uh, yellow cake had been bought at Niger and all that. Well, they had other information that they didn't tell us. They had other information. The Germans had said they didn't trust the intelligence. The people in Niger said, no, this hadn't happened. But they didn't tell us that. They didn't come to us and say, well, we have very confusing intelligence, but we're thinking about launching a war. They said, we have very clear intelligence. That was an act of fraud. And experienced prosecutors have said that George Bush should be prosecuted for murder, that he got these soldiers killed under false pretenses. It's a simple thing of, of controlling the crime scene after an assassination. We had heard things in 2001, 2002, 2003 about surveillance, but nobody paid much attention to it until we had documents. This is what Ellsberg says in Secrets. He says, you can t- tell people about it. You can be an insider and say, I heard this, but people will blow you off. But if you have the documents... Another thing I think that we need to do is be careful with our language. And that's why I'm looking at conspiracy theory and saying that is a bad term. That is a bad term. I think that 9-11 is not a good term. I don't mean to say, I'm not sure what we would call it, but by defining it as a date, it elevates the importance of the event, and we need to ask ourselves, where did that term come from? We've never called these events by dates. We didn't call Pearl Harbor uh, 12-7. Uh, we, we didn't call Kennedy 1122. Uh, why did we call this? Anyway, here I'm going on. Uh, what do you think of the uh, Boston Marathon bomb? There are a lot of suspicions about it, a lot of questions, and I, I, a lot of peculiar coincidences. I'm not, I'm not compelled by the idea that it was a conspiracy, but I wouldn't rule it out. But here's what I asked myself when I saw it. Were there any other crimes committed around it during the same time? Because when you go back and look at state crimes against democracy, the way I'm defining it, what you see is they occur in clusters. So you have Watergate, you have Ellsberg being stalked, you have the 1968 October surprise. When you see these, what happens is, I think, when these criminal elements get into government and get start acting, they don't stop with one crime. When they killed Kennedy, they didn't stop with Kennedy. They killed Oswald. 
Yes, sir, in the back. You, know. you said uh, what we need to do is enforce the law. One thing I'm trying to do is devise forensic techniques that allow us to come forward with something beyond speculation. Uh, I, I have written about it, about let's get laws passed that mandate. One thing I think we should have is if there's an assassination, we should mandate the crime scene is controlled. All the witnesses are interviewed and those are made public. The uh, You should... We well right now well that's the problem. No. Yeah, I have read about that. There's a guy in Florida that's talking about it. That's right, and that's an important point too: is to try to find venues that are legal processes. So it's not us just arm waving that we can actually get some action, some legal action. The the a woman who ran for attorney general didn't win in. Um, God, it was a northeastern state. Anybody know what I'm talking about? She ran with the idea of prosecuting Bush for murder. And she, she got um, Bugliosi, the lawyer who prosecuted the Manson for, for his murder, has written a lot, and she had him as an advisor. But that was their, their argument is we need to get this into judicial process. Uh, have you heard about a, a movement to have only 3% of Americans pull all their money out of the bank. Should oh, God. Military <laughs> in Syria. And, and, and if you have, do you think that would be effective? Well, it would certainly cause a lot of economic damage, and I don't know. I, I, I look at Occupy Wall Street as a good example these days of a mass movement. It didn't have a lot of effect on the doing a business in the United States, but it changed the discourse. People now talk about one percenters. And when Romney was running for president, there was that tape where he came out with the well, the 47 percent and get all this stuff. You know, it's, it really affected the discourse. So I, my strategy is to, to affect the discourse. That I think that's something we can do. <laughs> Buy my book. Write reviews on Amazon. Tell people that use the term state crimes, elite political criminality. Don't let people use the term conspiracy theory. Say, wait a minute, that's a flawed term. We know that came from the CIA. We've got no business using this. As it stands, it's the other way around. You, if you're on TV and you say something like, that's a conspiracy theory, everybody goes, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't talk about that. So I think that. I don't mean to say that that's, you know, it's not getting us into grand juries. It's not getting us into court. When I was in Toronto in 2011 for their uh, 10-year hearings, there was a judge there from, a, from Italy who was on the Supreme Court of Italy. And that's what he said. He said, you've got to get this into a court of law. He recommended that we go to the United Nations has an international criminal court. It's, it, they can do investigations, and it does, we could investigate the United States, even if the United States said they didn't want to be investigated. And they, it, we can't necessarily try anybody, but we can at least investigate and embarrass the heck out of the leadership and change people's thinking about it. So I, I agree. I think we need to be looking at judicial processes, but also the language, also speaking up. American democracy is in real, real trouble if it even exists anymore. When you say democracy, are you referring to Republican democracy? I'm referring to popular, the spirit of popular control of government and not necessarily representative government, although that's the form that we have. I think we have a, a constitution that is revered 
and a set of founders that are revered. And, and let me tell you, these people were conspiracy theorists. These people were vigilant. They were concerned about uh, tyranny. They thought that anybody who had power would abuse it. That's why they created the system of checks and balances to pit against each other the, the powers. They had these people swear an oath. Their top priority is not to protect the people. It is to protect, preserve, and defend the Constitution of the United States. They swear an oath to that when they violate that oath that's an impeachable offense, even if it's in the spirit. Go back and look at how we've impeached presidents. When we impeached Andrew Johnson, he was impeached for things like insulting the Congress. Today it's like you've got to find this smoking gun. You know, what did Nixon know and when did he know it? Wait a minute, you don't have to know that. Nixon hired a bunch of criminals. He should be impeached just for that. So... I think that the founders are important and we need to resuscitate that tradition. It gives us a foundation for uniting the right and the left in this country, the Tea Parties and the left, on the rule of law and the Constitution. For one thing, we couldn't go into Syria if we followed the Constitution. I think there's a counterculture forming now because of the mass surveillance that has now been publicized. That it's impossible for the American people not to see themselves as distinct and separate from the government. And the government is not their government anymore. The government is the government. And they are, in a, in a way, the adversary, the enemy, and are being snooped on. And just that state of mind is going to cause what happened in the 60s, the counterculture, where people begin to talk about us and what we think and what we believe and feel as opposed to what these people in Washington think. The 1% language does that a little bit. Um, but I'm, I think, look, it's not for nothing that somebody like me is writing about state crime. It's people, people are waking up. People are beginning to see. It's, it, they're apathetic, but when it comes to their liberties and their personal freedoms, they, they take it a little bit more seriously. So I'm, I personally think that we're going to see uh, a real revolution of consciousness in this country in the next. Maybe the other thing I would say about uh, looking back at the 60s, is that took 10 years. Okay, you had uh, the counterculture movement began, began in the early 60s on the campuses. You had the anti-war movement really flowing out of the civil rights movement and the women's movement. That all takes about 10 years. And you don't get you know, the church commission for 15 years. It's a long process. Today we have the Internet. Today we have email. Today we have dialogues that occur very quickly on this information. You can go home tonight and look up that dispatch I was telling you about. You have the document. You can say to people, you want to see where conspiracy theory came from? That word? Here. Take a look at this. That is light years ahead of where we were in the 60s. So I think that there is a realization coming. I think you're talking about moving past left and right and talking about resurrecting constitutional governance and law and order, essentially, in our country. Um, but one thing you mentioned when you were talking about the Boston Marathon, that you look for unusual patterns of what appears to be like illegal activity. And I would add to that also um, pushing the envelope. For example, in Boston, that was an instance where they instituted martial laws. Yes, that's true. Yep. So they do these demonstrations, yep. and with a company with a lot of press, that's very self-congratulatory how happy everyone was yep. that they did that. And that sort of thing, I 
Well, and I think our attitude should be that that should be investigated. All that stuff should be investigated. The, the Athenians had a process when you got out of office. They went through all of your records to see if you had committed any crimes. And that's what we should do. When you leave office, it should be a thorough inspection of the books and taking depositions from people and so on. These guys would get a lot straighter after that. And because of the, uh, the popularity of that movie called Argo, and because of the recent publication in the Christian Science Monitor of what Bonnie Sager said really happened during the hostage. Yes. I'd appreciate it if you could go into that more. Well, the 1980 um, October surprise, George Bush was the vice president nominee with Reagan, and he and Bill Gates, who was the secretary of defense under under Bush, and Bill Casey, William, this this should tell you, William Casey was the campaign manager for the Reagan-Bush campaign, and after they got elected, they made him head of the CIA. Now, you go, campaign manager, CIA, whoa. But same with Bush. I mean, he had been uh, head of the Republican National Party in 1972 when the Watergate happened. They make him head of the CIA. Ford puts him in there. So, But in 1980, Gates, George H.W. Bush, and um, Bill Casey met with the uh, Iranians and got them to hold keep the hostages through the election so that Carter would look weak and it ultimately costed Carter the election. There was an obvious tell in that scad too, and that was they released the hostages on inaugural day. I mean, they do this. This is an amazing thing to me. Is it's it's obvious. <laughs> you know, the difficulty is pinning these people down and proving it, but you can you can see it on the surface. They did an investigation of that in Congress, and uh, Casey and Bush came up with alibis. And, of course, said it was ludicrous to think they had done it and all that. And then later their alibis came into question. Their real doubts about they appear to have slipped off from meetings that they were supposed to be in. But when Iran-Contra broke, see, what they had told told the Iranians in 1980 was that if they would hold the hostages, the Reagan-Bush administration would sell arms to Iran who was, they were fighting a war with Iraq. And they, so we had propped up the Shah in Iran, and so all their military stuff was American. And they didn't have, like, tires for their airplanes and things like that. And so Reagan and them said, you keep the hostages, and then we'll sell you arms. Well, they start selling arms in April. This later comes in April, right after the inauguration. Later this perambulates into the Iran-Contra scandal, where they're selling arms to Iran, taking the profits and sending them to Rebels who were trying to overtake a democratically elected socialist government in Nicaragua. When they investigated Iran-Contra, the Congress stipulated that they would not go back and look at the 1980 issue. So they did all this investigation of Iran-Contra, but, well, we're not going to go back. But these guys, they all protect each other. They pretty much look after themselves. Nixon was pardoned. Understand this. Nixon was pardoned not just for the crimes he committed, but for all crimes he committed or might have committed while president. Yeah, might have committed. Didn't even get a list. We don't even know what they were. You know? So when I say enforce the law, I mean, for one thing, we should have a law that says you can't pardon people who you order to commit a crime. <laughs> I, mean, geez. I mean, at the very least. 
Yes. I was going to ask, how do you enforce the law when the people who are in the power and doing these conspiracies and whatever are the ones that are writing the law? Yeah, no, it's a very big problem. But one thing that I've argued in my writings and in class is that the people near the bottom of the pyramid, they do the right thing. If we have professional programs and encourage people to take an oath and... and uh, Remember when the hijackers were coming into the United States? There was a guy that stopped one of the hijackers and sent him back. Uh, when John Kennedy was killed, uh, the, the Secret Service took his body back to Washington. There was supposed to be an autopsy in, in Dallas. The uh, coroner in Dallas tried to stop them, you know, stood in front of the coffin and said, no, I'm not going to, and they moved him aside by force. But at the, at the front, at the front line, We've got strong people. I mean, just regular old Americans. You know, they'll speak up. I think having juries instead of these Warren commissions, you know, I mean, you put all these muckety-mucks on a commission and they're all going to take care of each other because they're thinking about, you know, I don't want to piss this guy off. You know, what am I going to get business from? Are they going to appoint me to something later? Just give me an American jury and let them judge this stuff. So... But part of it is we have to re- restore our skepticism about our leaders. I mean, the founders thought these they, they were dangerous people. And thank you to Olivier for pointing me in the direction of that talk. Now we conclude with part one of a radio adaptation of the best film, I think, that can ever be made about Operation Gladio because it interviews a lot of the key players, heads of the parliamentary inquiries into Gladio, government uh, officials, members of Gladio, some of them convicted, serving long sentences, and a lot of these people are now deceased. It was something of a breakthrough at the time, which really put Gladio on the map. Uh, May, of course, have put Alan Frankovich on the map, as far as deep state forces were concerned. Alan Frankovich, you may recall, died uh, ostensibly natural causes of a heart attack after being taken aside for questioning by officials while going through customs at an international airport in the US. Might just be coincidence, Uh, perhaps it's my statistical training, but there might be more to it than that. Anyway, I present a radio adaptation of Alan Frankovich's 1992 production, which was broadcast once on BBC Two. I don't think it's ever been repeated, but the video is available for download, and I shall link again from this episode's webpage, unwelcomeguest.net slash 724. Deception is a state of mind, and the mind of the state. James Jesus Angleton, deep politician, head of CIA counterintelligence, 1954 to 1974. Michel van Usset, Belgian Gladio, 1987 to 1991. One day, a man came to my house. 
and asked me if I would accept the confidential mission. He told me it was something within the framework of NATO. He didn't explain much. It was advisable not to be too specific, because this was one of the most secret organizations that has ever existed. We had a radio at our disposal. Our base was near London with the second base near Boston. Decimo Gallo, trainer, Capo Malagio, Gladio Base. I worked with Special American, English, French and Belgian units. Normally these exercises involved dropping special forces who came directly from France, Belgium and England. They were parachuted in and the men we had trained guided them down to the ground and then helped them to get to safe houses. Vincenzo Vinciguerra former member of a neo-fascist group, Ordine Nuovo, speaking from his jail cell. Gladio, as it is defined nowadays, forms part of what I have always referred to as parallel structures. That is, an invisible army that is not poised for battle against a hypothetical invader, but rather one meant to be used internally against what the military have always called the fifth column of the USSR, the Communist Party, and the extreme left. For 40 years, secret terrorist organizations, many trained by Western intelligence agencies, have manipulated the political control of European sovereign states by a campaign of terror and murder. Originally part of a secret network, these groups changed from being defenders of state security into attackers of the established political order. Until two years ago, that secret network was generally known by the single word, Gladio. On November the 9th, 1990, the Prime Minister of Italy, Giulio Andriotti, revealed to his own parliament and the world the existence of a top-secret European-wide network of secret agents. It was called Gladio. This network of stay-behind groups was intended to fight a Soviet invasion of Western Europe. Andriotti's announcement led to an immediate reaction in the capitals of Europe. The suspicion was that some parts of the Gladio structures were involved in internal subversion. Senator Roger Lallemand, head of the Belgian parliamentary inquiry into Gladio. The Belgian stay-behind network was brought to our attention by what they call Gladio, the scandal unleashed after the revelation of the stay-behinds in Italy. Our Minister of Defence was called by his Italian colleague who wanted to know what decisions had been taken at the last meeting of the European Stay Behind. Guy Cohen, Belgian Defence Minister 1988 to 1991. 
in November 1990. An Italian delegation came to ask me if I knew what Gladio was. I didn't know anything, except that on that very day, I read about it in an Italian newspaper on a flight to Brussels. In this way, I learned of the scandal in Italy called Gladio. Senator Roger Lallemand. The minister let this amazing detail be known that he didn't know that a Sabine existed in the Belgian army and state security. Gladio has always been protected. This is one clear example. Senator Libero Gualtieri, head of the Italian parliamentary inquiry into Gladiator. Moro was called to testify. They asked if he knew of a parallel secret structure inside of the services. And Moro asked the services what sort of answer he should give. They told him it didn't exist. And so Moro said, I've been told that this doesn't exist. Carlo Schmidt, head of the Swiss parliamentary inquiry into Gladio. Part of the Swiss authorities knew of the existence of this structure. Some MPs in a secret council had some control, but it was ineffective because these MPs knew virtually nothing. Vincenzo Vinciguerra. These parallel structures use the extreme right for the simple reason that they fought the communists. In 1945, the Second World War ended and the Third World War started. The autumn of 1944. Benito Mussolini would be dead in six months. Adolf Hitler in less than a year. As the Allied armies advanced on the capitals of Axis-occupied Europe, the other war, the secret war of agents and partisan groups that had always been part of the bigger war, was to reach its own climax. As the Germans withdrew, they left secret agents in the countries they had occupied. The secret services call such groups stay-behinds. For the retreating Germans, they were the staunchest believers. They were selected from the SS and the fascist Black Legions. They were to become the foot soldiers of the next war about to begin, the Cold War. In Brussels, a massive meeting has been staged on the theme Peoples of Europe against Bolshevism. We saw over there on the Russian plains the Italians and Croats, the Hungarians, Norwegians, the Danes, our Flemish brothers. We all met over there, these great forces which rose up. Why? because they too had this vision of the truth 
let us do battle together. Ahead of the advancing allies, always with the first troops, was the OSS, Office of Strategic Services. And that part of the OSS charged with locating enemy stay-behinds had been given the designation X-2. Peter Tompkins, OSS Office, Rome, 1943-45. I came in and sent by General Donovan and got in touch with the heads of the Committee of National, the, the military junta of the, of the Committee of National Route, which is the, the joint partisan groups. Andy Birding was the first X-2 guy who came into Rome. Um, and he'd been an old AP correspondent, and I thought I could trust him that he was a good guy. Uh, and so we turned over to him everything we had on the German stay-behinds. Then uh, Jim Angleton appeared in August, he began recruiting fascists because he figured that the best way to control the communists was to hire fascists. One of the most tough ones was Prince Valerio Borghese, who ran what was known as the Tenth Flotilla. These are the guys that would execute partisans and hang them from lampposts all over Italy. Oh, bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao. Angleton made a deal with Borghese and then rushed up to save this commander from the partisans who would have lynched him any time because he had lynched thousands of partisans. Vincenzo Vinciguera. Prince Valerio Borghese takes us right to the heart of the American Secret Services. He was saved and protected by Angleton in 1945 when he gave himself up in Milan at the end of the Second World War in Italy. The Decema Mas, the group that Valerio Borghese commanded, promised the Allies to take up arms in the event of a Soviet invasion. Vicio Gelli, later to head the secret P2 Masonic Lodge, had been a liaison officer attached to the SS. He had his own encounter with X2 agents. Licio Gelli, venerable master of the P2 Masonic Lodge. We were taken prisoners by a group of Canadians who handed us over to the ISS. I was treated well by them for about a week. In an apartment in Pistonia, they brought me a sheaf of paper and the officer told me to write down my life story from my first communion to the present. A week later they asked if I wanted to be parachuted into the north. It was a U.S. colonel who asked, but I said no, my work was over. To show what, a, what a, a, a cynical game it is, this young policeman, uh, Federico Umberto D'Amato, the night that the Allies came in to Rome, rounded up all the German stay-behinds whose addresses he had, put them in jail, turned them over to the Americans, and they were disposed of. The German stay-behinds were turned over to Italian authorities and sentenced by Italian military courts. 
Federico Umberto D'Amato, Head of the Political Police, Ministry of the Interior, 1972-74. I was working at the hotel where General Melzer was based. He was the head of German armed forces in Roma. The central command of the Abu Wellufta was also there. One day I managed to get into one of the rooms with some priests. I got hold of these lists of names. When the Germans left, contrary to my expectations, these people remained because there was an operation to leave people in place once they were retreating so they wouldn't have to cross the lines. Something like, and you know this better than I do, Operation Gladio. When the Americans came for these men, they were already in custody. From that day of his joining Jim Angleton, or the X2 part of OSS, he ran the secret police for the next 40 years. It was from that moment that I started working with him, always in agreements with my government and the authorities. Many police officers were forced to follow Mussolini north. They were in a sorry state at that time. Since my father was a police official and knew everyone, the X2 branch decided to parachute me, a complete novice, into the region of Saulo. I luckily managed to arrive safely where I met the main officials of the Republic of Saulo. They naturally agreed to cooperate. After the war, they became important leaders of the Italian state, the police forces and the Ministry of Interior. Now, the next character who doesn't show his face is introduced as Colonel Oswald Lewinter from the CIA ITAC Liaison Officer Europe, where ITAC is the Intelligence Tactical Assessment Center of the DIA. Liaison was assigned to a CIA officer. I'm going to give you a little bit of background to him. His official narrative, Wikipedia, as of August this year, presents him as a convincing storyteller best known for his stories about the October Surprise controversy, Wikipedia still not accepting that the October Surprise conspiracy actually happened. That's another story, but Wikipedia is highlighting the claim that he's a chameleon who can show up and pretend to be anyone, anywhere. That, to me, falls a bit short of the facts, because things like... His arrest in 1971 with an NYPD badge and diplomatic papers, including claims that he was a Knight of Malta, British authorities jailed him, but decided not to pursue charges. In 1984, he was arrested for a $100 million scheme to smuggle methamphetamine into the US, including manufacturing it. Sentenced to six years, but released after two. Uh, so this and a few other things as well. The October Surprise Conspiracy, Lockerbie. He seems to be involved in quite a lot of information. Now, 
Perhaps he is just an amazingly high-flying con man, in which case it seems odd that the authorities have pursued a light touch with him. I don't know what the going rate for methamphetamine production and smuggling is, but I would have thought two years for $100 million worth is pretty light. His statements have contradicted one another, and he has on occasion said, yes, I was lying before, now it's the truth. So we have to bear that in mind. That seems to me to be possibly he's a pathological liar. A lot more likely, though, given the various intrigues in which he does appear to me to have been involved, uh, he's made a comment and people have lent on him to retract that comment. So he's been persuaded, who knows how, to change his testimony for the purposes of pleasing higher-ups in the power structure. He's also involved in a claim that Diana, Princess of Wales, and Dodie Fired were unlawfully killed, and he claimed to have evidence of that. Trowbridge H. Ford has claimed that Lewinter was Dwayne Claridge's deputy for European operations. Now, whether or not it's true, as one commentator noted, Oswald Lewinter is an article unto himself, one of hundreds feeding mystery meat into the sausage grinder of history. I thought it was worth having a little bit of a biographical detour before we continued with his testimony, since Frankovich makes extensive use of it in this video. Claudia was a joint brain child, but its most intense architect was Angleton. And Angleton, as most people know, was a sort of a professional paranoiac. One of his favorite sayings used to be that even paranoiacs have enemies. And uh, Angleton was a fellow who felt that you couldn't trust anybody, particularly not any foreign country. Federico Umberto D'Amato. As time passes, as more is discovered about the Second World War and the period after that, namely the Cold War, you will learn what an extraordinary man Angleton was, a truly extraordinary man even to the point of being slightly crazy. For as Erasmus of Rotterdam said, a little madness is needed in everything. And when you were recruited by the OSS, which was the service that the CIA grew out of, there was a sign saying, to join the OSS, you don't have to be crazy, but it helps. I really think Angleton William Colby, Knight of Malta, attendee of Le Cercle and Director of Central Intelligence from 1973 to 1976. We sort of anticipated another world war, and a world war that would be characterized by an occupation of Western Europe by Soviet forces. And therefore, we were preparing to set up the base for a resistance movement uh, which could exist during the war. Now, the next speaker, Ray Klein, is subtitled as Deputy Director of the CIA, 1962 to 1966. In fact, he was Director of the Directorate of Intelligence in the CIA. Possibly a small difference. Now, worth noting that he spoke at the 1979 Jerusalem Conference on International Terrorism that we looked at in episode 714. The uh, Soviet Union was viewed 
as our primary antagonist, our enemy, and I think that was true. Uh, the Stalinist period was a really vicious period in the Soviet Union, and uh, we thought uh, in the late 40s and early 50s that Stalin might invade Western Europe. John Singlaup, U.S. Army Major General, 1972 to 78, and involved in Iran Contra. It was the plan that I knew about that the uh, people who had a logical reason for being in a given area where we felt it was essential to have stay-behinds and whose uh, activities could continue even after uh, an attack by the Warsaw Pact, uh, he would be given additional uh, training. He would uh, know the location of some of the arms and communications caches and that uh, he uh, would uh, be able, as a result of his training, to recruit additional personnel to augment his, uh, his network, and that it would include uh, not only just communications, but it would include uh, ability to use explosives. Uh, the stay-behind effort, in my view, was simply to be sure that if uh, the worst came to worst if a communist party came into power that there would be some agents there who would tip us off and tell us what was happening and uh, be around to, to uh, provide the information even after the coup might occur. Thomas Polgar, CIA, Germany, 1951. With the emergence of NATO in Western Europe in specific response to the communist takeover in Czechoslovakia in 1948 and the Berlin blockade, uh, directives were issued to establish Europe-wide stay-behind organizations along the lines which existed in the final years of World War II in Western Europe. Oswald Lewinter. There was a, an amendment to the NATO protocol and that amendment was absolutely necessary. You didn't get in the door unless you sign. And what was in that amendment was the agreement of the government not to prosecute right-wing activists, right-wing activities, anti-communist activists in their own countries. Ray Kleins. It's uh, not unlikely that some right-wing groups were recruited and uh, made, a, made to be stay-behinds because uh, they w would indeed have tipped us off if, if a war were going to begin. Uh, they, so using right-wingers, uh, if you use them uh, not politically but for intelligence purposes, is okay. Erhard Dabringhaus, U.S. Counterintelligence Corps, Germany, 1948 to 49. In 1948, I was uh, a special agent with CIC, that's our counterintelligence corps in occupied Germany. I was stationed in Augsburg, and as such, since I spoke fluent German, I was assigned to handle a network of German informants. Among them was Klaus Barbie, and Klaus Barbie was uh, later on 
I discovered that he was wanted for murder by the French and that uh, I reported this to my uh, superiors and they told me to keep nice and quiet. He's still valuable. When he's no longer valuable, we'll turn him over to the French. I thought that I was going to get a promotion when I told him about Barbie and they told me to keep quiet. Colonel Gunther Bernau was an agent, an informant, working for the military intelligence in Stuttgart. We had provided him a, a home, a safe house in Ludwigsburg, and uh, there I met him three times a week, and he brought us information about uh, communists and whatever we wanted to hear, he told us. He was certainly a very strong Nazi, uh, I sat in his office one day and opened his uh, album of pictures from the war, and in the middle of the album it showed a nice picture of Adolf Hitler. Several other high-ranking SS officers who came to visit him in his safe house that we had provided, and he told me that uh, if for any reason he needs help, by one telephone call he could contact 200 former SS leaders from Hamburg to Munich. I remember him taking me to one particular spot, which we un uncovered and uh, dug it out, and there were uh, rifles, small arms, grenades, all nicely wrapped in cosmoline, and he said, we have thousands of these all over the country. And that sort of made me a little suspicious, and I reported this, and they said, well, we, we know this. They're all working for us in case the communists come across the... Uh, Iron Curtain. A former general, SS general, Paul Hauser, was a frequent visitor at uh, Bernau's house, and uh, uh, they worked together hand in glove about certain programs which we didn't know anything about, and I wasn't even asked to find out more about it. Somebody above me must have been running this network already at that time. Oswald Lewinter. The man in Adenauer's office who also had, I guess, his uh, fullest confidence, who oversaw Gladiante in its earliest stages, was a fellow named Dr. Globke, who was an ex-Nazi, who now had brought into the government the way he brought a lot of ex-Nazis into the government, because I guess his position was that these were the only people who really had any administrative experience, and uh, so they were... Uh, I guess denazified, if you want to call it that. They were cleaned up a little bit like uh, today, Nazi tomorrow, Democrat, like changing undershirts. What we were doing is either with the government uh, secretly or independently on our own looking for people who might perform this function in some country where you didn't have that connection with the government or whatever, or maybe you did as a supplement but maybe one or two extra people that uh, would have this training that would stay there during a Soviet occupation and be the base that you could then talk about recruiting other people to join. And that's where we're going to have to leave it this week due to time. Many thanks to all the volunteers who lent their voices to Alan Frankovich's film. It's not too late. I still need one or two more voices. If you'd like to, you can contact me, unwelcome at unwelcomeguests.net, and offer to help. This and all previous episodes of the show are available for download from our MP3 archive 
unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. Our theme tune by Billy Bragg and Wilco has lyrics by Woody Guthrie. Go!